If you'll please open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 1. We're really looking at the first uh, angelic visit of this Advent season, the visit to Zechariah. Now some, some translations say Zacharias, okay? Same guy, just uh, different translations translate it differently. Um, Zechariah or Zacharias. My translation says Zechariah, so I'll just say that this morning. Uh, here we have Gabriel's visit to Zechariah. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 25. And we begin here with sort of uh, Luke's preface to the, his gospel, his address to Theophilus, the guy he's writing his gospel to, um, kind of explaining the purpose of the book. And then he jumps right in, introducing us to Zechariah. So this is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Lord, we come to you this morning and ask for your help. We know that we are needy sinners, need, in need of salvation uh, that is only available through Jesus, in need of your grace even as we come to study your word. And Father, we pray that uh, this morning that you would shine a light into our hearts, shine a light into, onto this text, that uh, you would teach us from it this morning, that, you would, uh, that as we begin this Advent season looking at Jesus and looking at these angels who've visited announcing 
uh, making announcements around his birth, Lord. We pray that you would uh, show us the gospel in a new light. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things that I remember the most about childhood, about my childhood, is that there seemed like there was a lot of waiting involved, okay? You know, children don't have a lot, to, they don't have a lot of responsibilities, they don't have a lot to, to weigh them down, to worry them, and so there's just a lot of uh, biding your time as a child, right? Uh, a lot of uh, asking mom and dad, okay, when is the next thing? When, uh, you know, lots of questions. How long till supper? Um, how long until we go home? How long until church is over this morning? Uh, how long until Mr. Kevin's finished? How long until um, we can get up from nap? You know, there's all these, you know, just always kind of counting down things as a kid, always waiting. And I know this is true because now I'm a parent, and I find myself all the time telling my kids, okay, just wait, just be patient, just, just hold on a second, just wait. Um, so there's a lot of waiting uh, for children. Um, and, you know, the, the weight, I think, as it, for a child, the weight that was the most agonizing, at least for me growing up, was the wait until Christmas, okay? And, and here we are, knocking on the door of Christmas. Um, you know, but it just seemed like it took forever for Christmas to get here. And, you know, you're counting down, it's like July, and you're asking your mom, how long until Christmas? Um, it's a long time, okay? Just settle in. Um, and, you know, there's, um, you're counting down the, week, the, the months and the weeks and the days and, and counting down until Christmas time. And it just seemed like it took forever. And, and just in the moment, as a kid, just in the moment when you almost want to give up, just throw in the towel, Christmas is never going to come, let's just, let's just give up the, the dream, okay? Just in that moment, it seems like, you know, dad would get the tree down from the attic, or you would go to the lot and buy the tree, or mom gets out the advent calendar, and, and suddenly there's, there's, you know, now this was, of course, my childhood when Christmas didn't start in October, it started like right after Thanksgiving, you know, but, but you know, uh, there, there would be, the, suddenly like decorations start coming out, and suddenly like it's here, like the final countdown has begun, the final countdown to Christmas is here, um, and that was such an exciting time when, we, when you, you know, all of this waiting, all of this patience seemed to have paid off, that, that it's finally about to happen. And when we look at the early chapters of, uh, of the Gospels, when we look at the early chapters of the New Testament, we see sort of a similar kind of thing, right? That, that the people of Israel had been waiting for 400 years to hear something from the Lord. Um, the last prophet had been Malachi, and it had been about 400 years uh, before uh, Luke chapter 1 takes place. And uh, one of the things that Malachi had said, if you notice in the front of your bulletin, Malachi had promised, in the front of your bulletin, Malachi chapter 3, Malachi had promised that, hey, there's going to be a messenger who comes before the Lord. And we see this on the front of your bulletin. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And Jesus quotes that passage, that verse from Malachi 3. Jesus will quote that in the Gospels and say, that is about John the Baptist. That passage is, t- is talking about John. And so Malachi had promised 400 years earlier... That, hey, you know, the Messiah is coming, but before that there's going to be a messenger who comes. And the people, you can imagine that after centuries without having any divine revelation from the Lord, centuries without having a prophet to speak to them, that the people, the children of Israel had, had maybe, you know, just like a child who's, who's almost hopeless that Christmas will come, the children of Israel had almost given up hope that they would hear something, given up hope that this Messiah might come. And yet here we come to Luke chapter 1. We come to our text today. And it's as if the final countdown has begun. The final countdown to this Messiah is here. And so um, we're going to talk about, as Dr. Bob said, we're going to be talking about the angelic visits um, over the next few weeks, over this Advent season. And so I wanted to uh, just talk just for a minute here uh, at the beginning about, about angels in the Bible. 
Um, I think it's important to take a second to do this. Um, when I was in when I was in college, I took a I went to State University and uh, took a um, a major world religions class. Okay, so you, you, at State University, you take a major world religions. You know, it's going to be pretty crazy, and it was. Um, but uh, so I took this class, and my professor. Was a, was a strange guy, okay? He would, like, strange, like, um, you know, he would offer, if you want to come back for hypnosis, I'm, a, I'm an expert, you know, hypnotist, and come back at 4 p.m. on Tuesday, and I'll hypnotize you and help you in your studies and stuff. I'm serious. That was totally uh, one of the things he said. And so um, I remember one day, though, he brings in this, like, cross-stitched uh, poem. He had written a poem, like, 20 years before, and one of his students had cross-stitched this poem onto this big thing, this piece of cloth, and uh, it was a poem he had written about angels, okay, and he reads this post, this poem to him, this poem, he reads this poem to us, it was like the craziest stuff, you know, I've ever heard in my life about angels, and it was just all this stuff he made up about angels, and it was really strange, and I share that story with you for this reason, because, you know, we can, we kind of have a lot of ideas about angels sometimes, we can, we can sort of, you know, we have on one hand, we sort of have these precious moment figurines of angels. We have, you know, uh, the way that we sort of think about angels in popular culture. We have other crazy ideas that, you know, religion professors will write about uh, angels and stuff like that. But the Bible really doesn't tell us a great deal of information about angels. We know a little bit about angels, but we don't know a tremendous amount. So I thought it would be helpful for us just to take a moment to kind of, what does the Bible really say about angels? Uh, well, one of the things we know is that angels are created beings, right? That God created them, that they, uh, they were made by him, that some of them seem to have human features, uh, but they're, they're very different from us also in many ways. And it seems that when we look at the Bible that most of the angels in the Bible seem to have two primary functions. One, one of the things, the primary activity we see the angels doing in the Bible is worship. They're worshiping and praising the Lord. They're praising God. They're very involved in that activity quite a bit. The second thing we see angels doing quite a bit is we see them functioning as messengers, okay, as carrying messages or delivering messages to people uh, throughout the Old and New Testaments. And we see that in our, in our text this morning, in this Advent season, where we're looking at four of those occurrences. Um, and even the, word, the Greek word for angel that's used here in Luke 1 actually literally means uh, messenger or one who is sent. And so we know specifically there are a few named angels in the Bible, right? We know Lucifer, was, he's a, a fallen angel, he, he's Satan, right? He's, he's one of the angels that we know, whose name we know. Uh, then there's Gabriel, who's in our text this morning, and then there's Michael. And um, we see Michael a lot in Jude and Revelation. He seems to be, uh, Jude identifies him as an archangel. He seems to be involved in, in battling with Satan quite a bit. He's kind of involved in, in battles uh, against evil, uh, evil spirits. Um, and then we see Gabriel, and Gabriel appears four times in the Bible. He appears twice in Daniel and twice in Luke chapter 1. And every time Gabriel appears, or every time he's named at least, um, he, he's named four times. Every time he's named, he's delivering some kind of message. And Daniel, he's, he's giving a vision or, or giving a, uh, a message to Daniel. He's explaining a vision to Daniel. And then we see him coming to Zechariah. And also uh, in a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll see him uh, deliver a message, the message to Mary, pro- uh, prophesying about Jesus' birth to Mary. And so... Um, so that's kind of that's that's a few of the named people. That's that's a little bit about Gabriel's background. Another thing we know about angels is that almost every time they show up, the first thing they usually say is "Do not be afraid." Okay, and so from that we can sort of gather that angels were probably perhaps sort of terrifying to to see face to face. 
Um, because almost every person that they encounter is filled with fear. Uh, we see, even uh, in our passage this morning, Zechariah says he, that fear fell upon him when he sees Gabriel. Daniel has the same reaction in, in Daniel chapter 8 when Gabriel appears. He's filled with fear at the sight of Gabriel. But other than that, we don't really know a whole lot about angels. So uh, with that sort of very brief background, let's turn our attention to our text this morning and let's kind of set the scene. What, what is the scene uh, that we sort of come upon here this morning. We'll sort of establish the scene, and then we will look at the content of Gabriel's message to Zechariah. So first, let's take a look at, at what's going on here. We see this in, in the first few verses, verses 5 through 12. Well, um, when is this taking place? Well, this is in the days of Herod the First, or also called Herod the Great. Um, he was king of, as our text says, king of Judea. He was sort of king of Judea and king of Samaria, king of Galilee, sort of all this little region right here. Um, he had been appointed to this role by uh, those in authority in the, Holy, in the Roman Empire at that point. And so uh, he, he's a, a king. He's kind of ruling this area, and he's a vicious man. He was known for murdering family members who got in his way. He's the one who, when Jesus is born and the, the wise men say, hey, there's this, we're going to see this king who's born in Bethlehem. Herod, this Herod is the guy who orders all the little baby boys in Bethlehem and around that region to be killed. Because he's worried about this, you know, this new king who's going to rise up and take his power. Um, and so that's the kind of guy we're, that we're dealing with here. But here in the midst of this wicked man's rule, we have a righteous man named Zechariah. And so we, the first person we're really introduced to in this, in this gospel is Zechariah, a priest. And we learn he's a priest of the division of Abijah, which we'll talk about that in just a moment. What else do we learn about him? He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. Uh, that they're both righteous people, that they are both that they obey God's commandments, they are faithful uh, to the Lord, and yet they are without children. They have no children um, because Elizabeth was was barren, and uh, they're now advanced in years, and it looks unlikely that they will have children. Now let's just pause here for just a moment. If you have any familiarity with the Old Testament, when you come to a passage that talks about a righteous woman who is barren that ought to send some alarm bells off okay we have seen this many times before in the bible that righteous women who uh, had no children were unable to have children this ought to be almost an indicator for us luke is kind of uh hinting here that hey this is a something very special is about to take place so pay attention it's very kind of hard for us to realize how devastating barrenness would have been for a married woman back in in the Old Testament, and these are early parts of the New Testament, um, there was really nothing worse for a married woman than to not have children. As, as Rachel, back in Genesis chapter 30, as Rachel tells uh, Jacob, she says, Give me a child or else I die. That, that's how serious it was for her. Give me children or else I die. And so this was how women were sort of valued in those days. This is how women were felt to be valued, that they would have children, particularly male children. Just as our culture uh, tries to convince women that, hey, your value is in your external beauty, uh, these ancient cultures would convince women that, hey, your value is in having children, having babies. Uh, and so even Elizabeth, in our, at the end of our passage, we'll see in a few moments, uh, she admits that she feels shame about her barrenness. This was a very heavy burden uh, for women in the ancient world to bear. Uh, but one thing that I think is clear from the Bible is that the Lord has great compassion uh, for, for barren women. Um, it's, no, it's no accident that uh, immediately in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, we have Isaiah 53, uh, the, the song of the suffering servant, this beautiful passage about Jesus, this beautiful prophecy about the, the Lord who would come, and Jesus who would come and, and suffer as a servant. Immediately on the heels of that in Isaiah 54, uh, 
Isaiah paints a picture of, of, of a barren woman rejoicing at this news. That, 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 that's the, it's no accident that Isaiah uses that picture um, because it is, uh, the Lord has great compassion uh, for women in that state. And, and so we see there are many godly women who were barren in the Old Testament. Uh, we see Sarah, right, Abraham's wife. We see Rebecca, Isaac's wife. We see Rachel, Jacob's wife. We see Hannah, the mother of Samuel. We see Samson's mother. I mean, all of these women that struggled with barrenness, all of them, um, men and women who had prayed to God and God had heard their prayers and then given them a special child in each case. And so we know that, that something very special is about to happen here. A special child is going to be born here. So what is, what is the activity that Zechariah is involved in? What's he doing in this passage uh, when Gabriel comes to visit him? Well, he is serving as a priest. He is doing his priestly duties. And we read that he's a part of the division of Abijah. Okay? So in these days, there were 24 divisions. All the priests were split up into 24 different divisions, okay? And they would serve in the temple uh, roughly twice a year, usually for one-week stretches at a time. And um, so they had various obligations and responsibilities to do as they served in the temple. One of those things to do was to go into the holy place and burn incense at the altar of incense. So this is not the most holy place, not the holy of holies. That was only where the high priest went. Uh, only once a year on the Day of Atonement. This is the room just outside of that, the holy place. And so uh, one of the priests would be selected by l- casting lots or by drawing straws, as sort of a modern-day equivalent, uh, to go into this, the holy place and to burn the incense. Now, this was a high, high honor. This was a, a, a great privilege. This was sort of a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity for a priest. There were a lot of priests, and not every priest um, had the uh, opportunity to do this. So this would be a wonderful honor for uh, Zechariah to participate in. He had been, the lots fell to him, and so it was his responsibility on this particular day to go into the holy place, to, to burn the incense at the altar of incense. And so um, as he goes in there, as he, he goes, he, he was to light the, to burn the incense and to offer a prayer, okay? This would be a prayer of thanksgiving to the Lord for his care, for his love, uh, his caring for Israel, but also it would have been a, uh, a, a, a request. He would give a plea for the Lord to continue to bless Israel, to love, to love and care for Israel. Uh, so he would have offered that prayer up with this um, incense. And so Zechariah, he's going about his work. He goes into the holy place. And what happens? This angel appears. Gabriel appears to him. And look at verse 12. We see, uh, just as we sp- mentioned a moment ago, what is Zechariah's response? And Zechariah, in verse 12, was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. So he's terrified. He's terrified at this, at this angel, just as many people who first encountered an angel in the Bible are. And so let's take a look now for, for the rest of our time. We'll look at what, what is the content of Gabriel's message? What does Gabriel come to say to Zechariah? And so the first thing we see is he delivers a promise to Zechariah. We see that in verses 13 through 17, this promise that Gabriel gives Zechariah. The first thing he, that, that Gabriel says to Zechariah is that your prayer has been heard. Okay? Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Now what prayer is Gabriel referring to? Well, there are sort of two schools of thought on this, okay? One one argument is that he's referring to the the prayer that Zechariah was praying as part of his priestly duties, right? The prayer for God to bless Israel, the prayer for God to uh, care for his people. Others think that uh, based on Gabriel's comments here that he was referring to, no doubt, the prayer that uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for years and years and years, the prayer for a child. 
Uh, some think that he was re- referring to that prayer. And that, the context does seem to lean that way. Look at verse 13. It says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So which, which prayer is uh, Gabriel referring to? The prayer for Israel or the, prayer, uh, the personal prayer for a child? Well, I, I think uh, we could say, why not both? Why, why can't the answer be that, that both of these prayers have been heard? They're both being answered in this one announcement. That he's going to say, look, that the prayer that you and Elizabeth have prayed for so many years, the prayer that you would, thought would never be answered, is going to be answered. You're going to have a child, and this child is going to be a blessing to Israel. This child is going to be a blessing to the people of God. Um, and we see that in his answer. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Uh, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. So he's saying you will have joy and gladness. The, the child that you have so longed for, the son that you have desired to have, you will have. He will bring joy and gladness to your life. And many are going to rejoice at his birth. He's saying, look, many people are going to look back at this day. Many people are going to rejoice at the day that your son John came into the world. Why is that? For, it's because he will be great before the Lord. Your son is going to be a great man of God. He is going to be used to do mighty things for the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself seems to confirm this. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, Truly, when referring to John the Baptist, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there was, or there was arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So even Jesus says that this is a great man. This is a great man given a great task, a great responsibility. And so uh, Gabriel goes on to tell Zechariah that, look, there's going to be some requirements. There's gonna be, he's going to be a special child. He's going to be a special, even from the time of his birth, he's going to be set apart. And we see that in verse, the rest of verse 15. It says, For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so he's given almost sort of part of the Nazarite uh, requirements, okay? The Nazarites were not allowed to consume alcoholic beverages. They were not allowed to cut their hair. Um, you remember Samson was born as a Nazarite. He was, his parents were told the same thing. Um, there's no mention of cutting hair here. So John the Baptist is not quite a full Nazarite. But, but Gabriel is saying, look, he's, he is going to be set apart. He's not going to be filled with wine. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Even from his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will be set apart for a special task, set apart for a special purpose. It can be argued that there was no uh, greater prophet, no greater role for a prophet than the role that John the Baptist would have. And what was that role? What was his task? Well, we see uh, that in verses 16 and 17. Uh, Gabriel says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so he says that, look, he, John is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to be a great prophet, turning the children of the Lord uh, back to the Lord, back to him. Uh, the people had been waiting for something from the Lord for 400 years, and, and Gabriel seems to be saying, this is it. This is this great prophet. That, this is this messenger that you've been waiting for. Um, and so, but what does this next phrase mean? That he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient of the, of, to the wisdom of the just. Well, in short, it means this, that, that the ministry of John is going to result in real fruit. It's going to result in true conversions. It's going to result in true repentance, right? And, and what, are the, what are the two sort of pictures of, of true uh, conversion that, that he gives there? He says that the fathers will ter- be turned to their children, 
In other words, there's going to be love and harmony in the home. Um, and, and the example of that is going to be the father's love for his children. Uh, just a few months ago, I believe it was, in 1 Peter 3, uh, Dr. Bob preached a sermon on husbands and fathers and talked about how the father, the husband, is to be the source of love in the home. And we see something very similar to that here, that how do you know that a, a, a con- true conversion has taken place? That the fathers love their children, that there is love and harmony in a home because the fathers love. And we also see this, that the disobedient will turn to the wisdom of the just, that people are going to be repenting, turning away from their sin and turning to the Lord, turning to God. Um, so this, there's going to be real fruit from John's ministry. And so what was the purpose of all of these things? What is the purpose of all of this? It's to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. To, his ministry is going to be one of preparation, preparing people, preaching repentance, and preparing people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that at the very end of that verse there. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is going to be the one, uh, John the Baptist will be the one in John 1 who points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That, that was going to be his responsibility, his job. He would be the one to set the stage for Jesus to enter and then to step aside. Um, when John's, if you recall in John chapter 3, when John the Baptist's disciples come to him, they say, this guy, Jesus, uh, you know, he's, he's preaching, he's baptizing, and people are going, more people are going to hear him now than to come hear you. You know, shouldn't we be concerned about this competition? And John the Baptist says this uh, about Jesus' ministry. He says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, and I must decrease. And so that's what John was called and equipped to do. He was to be a herald for the king, someone who stands up and announces that the king is in the room, the king is in the building, the king is here, and he is coming right now, and then to step aside uh, so that all attention and glory be given to the king. This was no doubt a role of humility, yet um, this is what John was called to, and he would be a great man before God. So this is the promise that, that Gabriel gives Zechariah. You will have a son, and he is going to be a blessing to Israel. He's going to People are going to repent and turn to the Lord based on his ministry. Uh, that he is going to have a, his, has an important role to prepare people, to prepare the way of the Lord. Just as we read about in Malachi 3, just as we read about in Isaiah 40 this morning, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That was to be John's job, his responsibility. So that's the first part of the message, a promise. But the second part of, Zach, of uh, Gabriel's message is a, is a rebuke, okay? A rebuke. For Zechariah. So what is Zechariah's response to this wonderful promise? Notice with me in, verses, in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. He, he seems to be sort of asking for a sign here, right? He's asking, hey, give, you know, to give a reason, uh, a, 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 to give him a, a, a proof that this is going to take place. How do I know this is really going to happen? And he even gives kind of a reason that he doesn't believe it. And, you know, look, I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. We're, we're old people. You know, this is hard to believe. And I certainly don't want to beat up on Zechariah here. We can't blame him for this moment of, of doubt. He and his wife had been praying for a child, I'm sure, for decades. They'd been praying for a child for years and years. Perhaps they were, you know, perhaps they'd given up. Perhaps they thought that this would never take place. Um, and now, as an old man, uh, Zechariah is told, no, you will have a son. You'll have a son now that you, you and your wife are very old. It is a hard thing to believe, isn't it? Um, and on top of that, it had been 400 years since they had heard anything, any sort of message from the Lord. Perhaps that's playing into Zechariah's doubt as well. But what does uh, Gabriel say to this? Notice with me in verses 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to you to, 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 bring, and to bring you this good news 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Well, first, he sort of gives a, a reason. Here, here's why you should believe me, because I am Gabriel, right? This should be a name that Zechariah would recognize. You know, the guy who was back in Daniel, the one who delivered the messages to Daniel. I am that one. I am he. I am Gabriel. I come directly from the presence of the Lord to give you this good news, okay? That's why you should believe it. That's why that should be good enough for you to believe. Um, but he also gives this gentle rebuke. And look, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be unable to, to speak until these events take place. Um, so Zechariah does receive the sign that he requested, right? You want a sign that, that uh, these things are going to happen? I'll give you a sign. You will be unable to speak. You'll be mute until these things take place. Uh, and so while all of this is going on in the holy place, outside uh, there are many people who are praying uh, while this incense was to be burning, praying for Israel, praying for Zechariah. Um, and so apparently Zechariah is in there much longer than is expected. And the people outside are wondering sort of where he is. And he emerges, he's unable to speak, unable to communicate. He's sort of trying to give them these symbols, these signals and stuff. Um, but, there's, but they know that something has taken place. And actually, if you go and look at, we won't look there now for the sake of time, but if you look at later in Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 59 or so, we see that there's indication that not only was Zechariah um, mute, that he was also perhaps deaf. Because whenever John is finally born, they ask Elizabeth, what should his name, what are we going to call him? Let's call him Zechariah after his daddy. And she says, no, no, let's call him John. And they say, no one's ever been, no one's in your family's name, John. That's not a good name for you. You need to have a family name. And so they go to Zechariah, and what the text says, if you look there, um, he says that they try to make signals to Zechariah, try to communicate with him. And so there's some, there's some indication that not only was he mute, but he was also deaf, completely unable to communicate with those around him. And so he is unable to speak or hear, perhaps, until the birth of John. Um, and so after he finishes, what happens then? He finishes his service, he goes home, and just as uh, the angel said, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and she keeps herself away for a few months. And we read this in verse 25. She thanks the Lord, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. And so uh, this, is sort of, this is sort of how the passage ends, that, the, that this, this, you know, Zechariah is given this promise, but he's also given this gentle rebuke. And so, uh, you know, Perhaps a question we might ask is why is, as we sort of wind down this morning, why is Zechariah, why is he, why did he get this sort of punishment? Why did he get this gentle rebuke? I mean, didn't Abraham uh, sort of question some of the things God's promises? Didn't Gideon not only ask for one sign, but ask for two signs? You know, why didn't, uh, why did Zechariah sort of get rebuked a little bit here? Well, I think the answer is, uh, there's perhaps several reasons, but I think one in particular is that Zechariah knew those stories. That Zechariah knew about the Lord opening barren wombs. Zechariah knew about uh, people having children in their old age, like Abraham and Sarah. Zechariah knew these stories of God's faithfulness, how God had promised things and had kept his promises to his people. Zechariah knew all these stories, and so there's almost a sense in which he's held to a higher standard that, hey, look, you should know better. You know, you have the Old Testament. You have the Word of God. You have read these stories. You have read these accounts. You're familiar with these things. You're familiar with the works of God that he's been doing for centuries and centuries among his people. Um, you, should have, you should know better than to, than to doubt this, Zechariah. And, um, and so here we are 2,000 years later, roughly. Um, and we have even more than Zechariah had, right? We have the New Testament as well. Uh, we have even more of God's word or even more of God's revelation to us 
than what he had. And so um, we have even more reason to believe God's promises. And yet we still do struggle to believe some of God's promises, right? Like God promises us that he will be with us, that he will never forsake us. And sometimes it's easy to be like Zechariah and sort of look around and sort of see the, the reality of, around us, the, the facts of life, and say, okay, I know that that's the promise, but I just don't see it, right? As Zechariah says, look, I'm an old man. I just don't see this happening. Uh, it's easy for us to look at our lives sometimes and say, you know, I just don't see that the Lord is with me, that, that the Lord is not going to forsake me. I just don't feel that. I mean, it's easy to fall into that. Perhaps it's another thing, it's another promise that's difficult for us to believe is that the Lord is going to return, that he's going to come again, right? We all know that we, we can say, you, of course, I know that's true. I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. I know that the Lord's going to come again. But to really believe that, to really live in light of that, I think, is a different thing. You know, here in the Advent season, right, what we're celebrating is, is the coming of Christ, his, his arrival, right? That's what Advent means. It means arrival. We're celebrating his first arrival. And there's a sense in which at Christmas time we are to reflect and look back on Jesus' first arrival, but it also ought to be building anticipation for us for his second arrival. And you know, one of our most beloved uh, Christmas hymns is Joy to the World. It's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful Christmas hymn, but it's really a hymn that's more about Jesus' second advent. It's more about his second coming, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let the men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That, that's talking about Jesus' second arrival, his second coming, when he completely reverses the curse, when he makes all things new, when he makes all things right. Uh, that's what we're looking forward to. Uh, so there's joy that he has come, but there's also to be joy that he is coming again, that he has not forsaken us, that he's not forgotten us. It can be easy to forget that truth, especially in the Christmas season, right? We're thinking about Christmas parties. We're thinking about we have to make sure we have the gifts for everyone on the, on the, in the family. We have to make sure that the Christmas card is just so. and We don't forget anyone's addresses and get the stamps. And we want to give our children this magical Christmas memory. And it's so tempting to get so caught up in those things that we forget not only uh, looking back to the birth of Christ, to his first advent, but to looking forward to his second advent, to his coming again to make all things right. But when this truth is before us, it, it will change our lives. It will change the Christmas season for us if we live in light of both of these. That Jesus has come, that he's put on flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he gave himself up for us, that he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. But the story doesn't end there. That he one day has promised to come again, to make all things new, to make all things right, as far as the curse is found. So this Advent season, may we be filled with joy at the birth of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may this Christmas season fill us with anticipation for his second advent as well. Amen. Let's go to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your love for us. We thank you for your grace and for this Christmas season. We ask that you would bless us this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.